Good morning, everybody. Look, I just feel like I can just reach out and touch. Was it? <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so, uh, my name is Jamie, everyone. <laughs> oh, my goodness, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy and peace. We need those so much. Will you help us to hear your truth today? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, did everyone have a thankful Thanksgiving? Just a big plate piled with Thanksgiving? Me too. Um, and now, I don't know how to tell you guys this, but um, it's the first Sunday in Advent. Like, it's Advent again. It was Advent three weeks ago. I just know it. Um, but it's the new church year now. And Advent is a season of waiting, and it's a season of hope. And uh, Advent's not a, a Bible thing, really. It's, um, it's a church thing. It's the four weeks before Christmas Day where the church... Uh, reflects on the arrival of Jesus. And that's what Advent means. It means arrival, but um, the better word is the Greek version of the word. It's parousia, which means arrival, but it's, it's the arrival of a king or an emperor. So the four weeks before Christmas Day, we reflect on the royal arrival of our king and savior, Jesus Christ. And Advent is a season of hope uh, because it's about Jesus coming, right? And he's the light of the world. Uh, but for some reason, the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Advent is Jesus' doomsday sermon about the destruction of Jerusalem. And uh, I would have loved to have been in on that meeting when they were deciding what to pick, right? <laughs> well, boys, it's Advent. How should we start it off? Season of hope. How about doomsday? Perfect. Next. Um, so every year we get to start Advent with a gospel reading from Jesus' prophetic sermon, uh, which some call the Olivet Discourse because he's preaching from Mount Olive. But it's a prophetic sermon, okay? And it's in the three synoptic gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you read this sermon in all three of the Gospels, you will find that it is very similar in each one. Uh, this year, it's uh, from Mark's Gospel. It's chapter 13. And the reading starts at verse 24. But there is no way that we can just jump into the middle of a prophetic sermon, okay? Uh, that's a bad idea. And that's how you end up with weird theology, or sloppy theology. Uh, so let's start at the beginning, okay, of Mark 13. And we'll quickly get some context for Jesus's prophetic sermon. So he and his disciples, they're in Jerusalem. Remember, it's Passover, and there's a lot of people in Jerusalem to celebrate. Um, and we've talked about this before, earlier, 
Um, he's come into the city on a donkey, remember? And everyone rejoiced. And uh, he's gone to the temple and he's turned over the tables. He's really riled up the Pharisees and the priests and they are plotting to kill him. Right? And now it's getting really close to the time of his arrest and crucifixion. So now he's spending his last moments with his disciples. Okay, he's finished with talking to crowds and leaders. He's preparing his faithful students for their future. Okay, verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Now, I know it is kind of easy to laugh at this, right? It's kind of like, look at the rednecks in the big city. Uh, but that temple was super grand, okay? King Herod had spared no expense to make that temple lavish. It's opulent, right? And he didn't do it for God's glory. Like, don't think. Uh, he did it for his own glory. So it was a very impressive building. And have you ever been impressed by architecture? Yeah, thank you. One person was brave enough to confess. <laughs> but I remember as a kid, uh, I went to the big city once the big Birmingham, Alabama, uh, on a field trip, you know, to a museum. And I saw this very big building, right? And I was like, look at that. People are driving their cars into that building, you know. And the teacher's like, that's a parking garage. What is wrong with you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was impressed with the parking lot, you know. So they're impressed with the temple. And they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay. Uh, this is his father's house. And when the kingdom comes, this is probably where they're going to rule from, wouldn't you reckon? And they're excited. They're impressed. What a great place to rule your kingdom from. And Jesus immediately shatters their thoughts about any of that. Right? His kingdom isn't going to be like any earthly kingdom. And one day, we're really going to believe that, you guys. <laughs> In verse 2, Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon the other. All will be thrown down. And this shocks them into silence. You know they're trying to wrap their heads around this. Like, what does he mean? No stone will be left upon another. That's total. That's total destruction. You know, when there's total destruction, there's no hope for repair. Advent's a season of hope. Verse 3, when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And notice it takes them a while. You know, they walk all the way to Mount Olive before they have the guts to ask Jesus about his temple prophecy. And who asks him? It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. 
It's his first disciples, his fishermen. That is who he's talking to right now. He's not talking to a crowd. He's not preaching to religious leaders. He is revealing this to his first four disciples, the ones who've been with him the longest. The ones he said, come follow me. And they dropped everything and followed. Then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Well, Advent's a season of hope. <laughs> now, are wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines new things? No. And they weren't new back then. And they're not new back now. And uh, remember, these four disciples, they've asked Jesus two questions. Like, when is this going to happen? And what is this going to be looking like? What will be the sign? Jesus continues in verse 9. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And you know they're like, the holy what now? <laughs> that hasn't happened before. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wow, there's a speck of hope. <laughs> that last sentence. Tiniest of specks. Do you suppose they regret asking him about any of this? <laughs> I think so, I would. And all the stuff that he talks about here in verses 9 through 13, that stuff happens. It happens later on in the book of Acts. We get to read about that. The apostles get arrested a lot, and they are beaten and imprisoned. It all happens to them. Okay, and now it's about to get weird. And really hard. Yeah. Don't worry. It's a season of hope. <laughs> Verse 14. But when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. What? <laughs> what does that sentence even mean? 
Let's look at it for just a minute. First of all, I don't know what it looks like on yours. Okay, there's the parentheses part. You guys realize, like, Jesus didn't say that. He's not, like, dictating to his secretary. Okay. That's a note from the gospel writer. And it's there to get our attention. When Jesus refers to the desolating sacrilege, and some translations call it something else. I think the abomination, desolation. Okay, so it might say it that way in your uh, translation. But the author wants us to stop and realize that that is a strange phrase. I mean, have you heard it recently? No, me neither. (laughs) Actually, I have, (laughs) because our study group was doing Daniel uh, this past week. And that's where this phrase comes from. It comes from the book of Daniel. So Jesus is quoting Daniel's prophetic vision. And any time a kingdom would sack Jerusalem, whether it was Babylon or Persia or Greece, like at some point, they would come through and desecrate the temple. Okay. Uh, And they would use it to make sacrifices to their gods. You know, it's a total power play. It's to make you know who's in charge. So there were times in Israel's past when there was a desolating sacrilege that took place. And here Jesus is saying, this will happen again. And is he right? Yes, it does. It happens again about 40 years after he talks about this. Um, In 70 AD, Rome comes in and they kill so many people and enslave the rest. And they desecrate the temple with a statue of Zeus or Jupiter. So does that help with the weirdness of that sentence at all? No? Okay, perfect. (laughs) Well, let's read it again. Okay. When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, statue of Zeus, let the reader understand this is going to happen again. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be in winter. For in those days there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now. No and never will be. Poetry. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. If anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be alert. I have already told you everything. Now, this prophecy is hard. This is devastating. Right? He tells them, when you see the temple desolated, lifeless. Lifeless with unholiness. Because Jerusalem has been sieged, by a heathen nation, again, 
what does he tell them to do? Does he say, stay and fight the good fight? Does he say, defend the temple and your nation at all costs? Not at all. He says, run, flee to the mountains. Does he tell them to hoard food and weapons? No. God is literally telling them the scariest prophecy they have ever heard right now. He's saying there will be suffering such as has not been from the beginning of creation until now. He says, you're just lucky that God's going to make it short. Otherwise, no one would live. And he never once says to fight or to hoard food or weapons. He who has ears, let him hear. If you hear a Christian prophesying and they tell other Christians that God wants them to hoard food and hoard weapons, is that Christian prophesying out of faith or fear? Do we serve a weak God who can't provide for his people? Do we serve a God of lack? Are we going to count on our own power and hoard things while we pretend to ask God for our daily bread? If any of that hurts your feelings, pray about it. Now let's get back to Jesus' prophetic sermon. We get to verse 24, and um, Jesus gets to the why of this prophecy. Now, the disciples didn't ask him why the temple was going to be destroyed, okay? But he answers the unasked question anyway. Verse 24, Jesus says, In those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now that sounds scary. I'm not going to lie. I don't want to see the sun go dark or the stars fall out of the sky. Uh, but here's the thing. God has said this before, okay? Like, I don't know. In mine, it's all indented and together. Maybe it's like that in your Bible, too. Jesus is quoting. He's quoting God, okay, from uh, something he said in the scriptures before, a couple of Old Testament prophets, they use this imagery. So he's quoting Isaiah. In Isaiah 13, God says through the prophet this very thing about the sun going dark and the stars and the moon not working and the heavens shaking. And God says he will punish the world for its evil. And it goes on and on, and it's pretty scary. It's a lot of scary words. And do you know what it's about? It's about God's judgment on the kingdom of Babylon. And God uses this imagery again about the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens in Ezekiel chapter 32. It's the same kind of thing. And it's about God bringing his judgment. And this time it's for Egypt. 
And there are at least two other times where God uses this imagery in the Old Testament. And it's when he's talking about bringing judgment on a kingdom. And in both of those times, the kingdom that he's judging is Israel. So when Jesus uses this imagery of outer space collapsing, it's a highly recognizable symbol of God's judgment. God is allowing this destruction to happen. In fact, it's his will. And why? Because Israel is, la- is acting like a heathen kingdom, right? They're acting like Babylon and Egypt. Israel is in rebellion again. Look, what large stones and what large buildings. You know, the Israels at this point, they still have a really awesome temple. But God was not glad and he's not impressed. Why? Because it wasn't holy. It wasn't pure. It was ceremony and sacrifice, but the priests weren't holy. They were corrupt. So everything they did was corrupt. The religious leaders and the judges, they were corrupt. And the Israelites themselves were more concerned with accruing earthly power so that they could be their own nation again and not be stuck under the thumb of Rome anymore. They're ignoring their covenant with God. And they are even desecrating the temple themselves. Isn't that why Jesus went in and flipped the tables over and accused them of making it into a market instead of a holy place? And then, when God sends his son to them to be their Messiah, they reject him. And they kill him, right? And that's the last straw. Jesus says in verse 26, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, that's a little mysterious. Um, So let's look at that. Um, In mine, the Son of Man coming in clouds is in quotation marks. Is it in yours? Okay, Um, now who's the son of man? Jesus, we can all agree, I'm sure. Um, And that phrase, son of man coming in clouds, is a quote, and it was used by Daniel. Again, he's quoting Daniel. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, he has a vision, and he sees the son of man on clouds of heaven. He's coming to the ancient of days. And it says, uh, there he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And in verse 14, it says that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And it says his dominion will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Jesus is telling his disciples this whole prophecy, and it's this part of the prophecy that's going to come to pass first. 
Because when does the Son of Man return to the Ancient of Days? Well, it was after his resurrection, his ascension. He returns to God the Father. And since the Jews rejected the Messiah, his chosen people are now anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. You no longer have to be born a Jew to be part of God's chosen people. Right now there's a church from the four winds, from the four points of the compass, right? All peoples, all nations and languages can serve him. It's pretty good news for us. Jesus gives this alarming and bleak sermon to his first disciples. And then he finishes it off with two parables. Can you imagine? He pours out all of this bad news and confusing mystery. And then he says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Like, what? Whiplash. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Oh, good. Like, there's quite a bit of hope in that part. The Son of Man is near. It's good news. But he kind of follows it up with, like, all of this stuff I'm telling you, it's going to happen within this generation. And that's as close as he gets to telling them when it's going to happen. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware. Keep alert. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Advent is a season of hope. And you know when I say hope, I'm not talking about like earthly hope. I'm not talking about wishful thinking. But I'm talking about a biblical hope, the confident expectation that God fulfills his promises, confident expectation that God is good, the confident expectation that God is who he says he is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That is who God says he is. Now, if you go back and read Mark 13 with that as your hope, then you will find that this weird 
bleak, challenging, and mysterious prophetic sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples is filled with hope. So let's look at this hope. First of all, he's revealing all of this to his disciples. Why? Well, do you remember earlier this year when we studied Matthew 13? It was that chapter with all the parables in it. (laughs) Maybe that'll jog your memory. Um, And the disciples ask Jesus, like, why are you talking in parables? Like, why this? Why now? And he tells them that they are blessed, that their eyes and ears are opened in a way that not everyone else's are. And he says, to you, it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Well, now here he is delivering on that blessing. I'm not sure it felt like a blessing at the time. But he is revealing secrets to them. They are his disciples, and they have work to do. And they need to know this stuff. And when they ask Jesus when the destruction will happen and what the sign of it will be, he doesn't answer their question directly. Like, when does he ever? He doesn't satisfy their curiosity. He's not interested in that. Instead, what he gives them is what they need. And he keeps showing his concern. And his concern is not for the temple, but it's for them. The first thing he says to them is, beware that no one leads you astray. And he warns them twice, once in verse 6 and again in 21, right? He says, don't fall for false messiahs or false prophets. But he says in 23, be alert. And he says some form of beware or be alert, keep guard, keep watch, so many times to them in this sermon. I think, I think he means it, you guys. He warns about false prophets, false messiahs, and he says, be alert, I have already told you everything. Jesus is saying, you don't need any more. I've told you everything. Talk about hope. Talk about receiving everything you'll ever need from the true Messiah. And still, he has so many warnings for them. Wars, famine, earthquakes. But he says, do not be alarmed. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. It seems like an unhelpful thing to say (laughs) when you're saying alarming things. (laughs) But he tells them, these things must take place. And he's like, and this is just the beginning. And all of this is said out of love. He's being honest with them. He's saying hard things. He does not give them a false hope the way a false prophet or a false messiah would do. In 9 through 13, he tells them that they will be hated because of his name. They will be arrested and beaten. And they will stand before governors and kings. Like These are fishermen. Name another fisherman who got to stand before a king. He says, you will have the king's ear, and you will tell the gospel to kings, to all nations. And don't even worry about what to say to those kings and those nations, because I've taken care of you, 
the Holy Spirit will speak through you. The Holy what? No. <laughs> it's like, can we go over that part again? <laughs> they get to testify in front of kings, you guys. In 14 through 23, when he's telling them about the brutal suffering that will happen, even then his heart is for them. And he gives the warnings, right? Run, flee, don't stop for any reason. But he gives them something more. In verse 18, he says, pray. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. But notice that he opens up this suffering to prayer. And he tells them that God will cut the days of suffering short. That's a lot of hope. God has a set time for this. God will not start this up and walk away. He's not going to forget them. He has a plan. And in 24 through 27, Jesus reveals the why why this is going to happen. It's God's holy judgment. It's his holy judgment on his hard-hearted people. And it's a pattern that is repeated over and over in the Old Testament. It's not anything new. God does not change. He is still gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he still forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. And he is still a God of justice. And he will punish his hard-hearted people who treat his temple like it's their temple and who treat his son, the Messiah, like a criminal. And he makes Jesus the light of the world who shines across all nations, offering salvation to all of us. So this gloomy and difficult and dangerous prophetic sermon that Jesus reveals to his disciples is full of so much hope. And now, make no mistake, um, none of this is easy, okay? The disciples have very hard lives. Three of the four disciples that he is preaching the sermon to will die. They will be martyred in despicable ways before this temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And just days after preaching this sermon, Jesus will be crucified. But, like he says in verse 31, his words will not pass away. And we have the benefit of knowing what happens after that. In verse, verses 32 through 37, he tells them four times in those five verses to keep alert Keep watch, keep awake. He is so concerned for them. 
He's concerned that they will let their guard down and that they might be tricked. Even though they have everything they need from him, he says, do not be led astray. And he says it to them, and he says it to us, right? 37, what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. He says it four times in five verses. He is serious about this. He doesn't want us to be easily tricked by false prophets and false teachers who try to sell us false hope or a false doom and gloom. We can buy into that. All of this instruction and hope that Jesus has for his disciples is also available to us, right? If we decide that we are his disciples, if we follow him, this is available to us too. Anybody interested in that? Anyone interested in being a disciple? Yeah. yeah. And we are in the middle of a plague right now. Yeah. And, you know, world governments are unsteady. We'll be generous. Uh, I mean, make a list. Unemployment. Everything. And we all have this hope that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples. He even tells us not to be alarmed. I know. <laughs> it's a hard one. But we have everything that he said to them, and it's for us. Hardship is not new. There's work to do, but don't worry. The Holy Spirit will do all of the heavy lifting, right? He says, pray, endure, be alert. God has not forgotten. He sees our suffering, and it is temporary. And when we see these things taking place, we know that he our Savior is near at the very gates. Does it get any more helpful than that? Is it easy? No. Not even like a little bit. No. It's hard. So let's pray for as much help as we can stand. Amen? Father, we love you, and we love who you are. And we love the hope you give us. And we're sorry for the times that we trust ourselves more than we trust in your goodness and abundance. And we are fools when we do this. Please forgive us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your good instruction. And we feel so loved by it. 
You say real things to us, and it feeds us. Thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you for doing the heavy lifting within us. We love this gift of hope that we've been given. Will you help us to hold on to every speck of it? Not so we can hoard it, but so we can share it with all nations and with kings, with neighbors. Will you help us with our work? Thank you. And God, we know that you are near. You are at the very gates. Will you bless us with the strength to endure so we can knock on those gates? We love you, God, and we trust you, God, and we hope in you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.